Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast provides updates based on the expertise and insights from the attorneys at the Washington, D.C.-based law firm, Fortney Scott, and their guests. This podcast will provide an analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand and is for informational purposes only and does not provide legal advice. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Thanks, Valerie, and welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the DC Insider Employer Update. We know we started the year, the first podcast we dropped was with the Labor Department's Wage and Hour Administrator, Jessica Lumen. I thought a very interesting, comprehensive discussion of what the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division was up to, and she highlighted that one of the major regulatory efforts that she had underway at that point was the regulation to define who is an employee and who's an independent contractor. Well, she called it right out. Within a week after we dropped the podcast, the Labor Department has now dropped that new regulation. What we want to do today is unpack the Labor Department's new final independent contractor regulation. This was published on January 10, and the business community, the regulated community, we have basically 60 days to get ready for this. Those rules are scheduled to become effective on March 11th. Now, the regulation involving who is an employee versus a contractor is one that has enormous consequences. And if we start with the statute itself to understand what's entailed in that, first, the statute begins with, you know, who's an employee? And it defines it very broadly. An employee is, quote, any individual employed by an employer, not terribly helpful. Then the statute goes on to define an employer. And in this case, an employer includes any person acting directly or indirectly in the interest of an employer in relation to an employee. Again, not helpful at all. And finally, it defines what activities constitute work that an employee would perform as anyone who is, quote, suffered or permitted to work. So that backdrop really provides why, in this instance, we have a statute that's very broad on its face, and to be fair, has been interpreted very broadly by the Supreme Court decades ago. But rulemaking is imperative for us to understand who is an employee, and by default, if you're not an employee, you are an independent contractor. So joining me, and guys, I'm sorry, I should have given a shout out to you right at the top. I've got both Nita and Bert. Nita, good day. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to be back in the saddle after the holiday season. It sure is. And hey, Bert. Hi, David. Hi, Nita. Not only nice to be back, nice to be talking about labor law. It sure is. And this regulation, which, of course, we've all known was coming, but it's here. And I guess, Nita, I want to start with you, but I want to ask each of you, what's your initial take on this new rule? Okay, it's 300 pages. It's a big read. Beyond it being a good doorstop, What else can you tell us? What's your initial take on the rule? I found it to be very complicated. Now, I've been doing this for a very long time. It's kind of scary, over 40 years. And unlike you, David, I'm not a full-time wage and hour person, but I found it complicated, and I'm a lawyer. I'm really concerned about it for employers. You know, Nita, you're not alone. I've been at it a long time, too, spending a lot of time with wage and hour. And I think that the biggest problem that this reg will have is being implemented because it is complicated and confusing. 
Well, I would agree with those observations. And the, the rule, the preamble is filled with all sorts of examples. And that tells you that even the Labor Department thinks the rule isn't clear because they provide all these examples to try to clean it up from the beginning. Well, Nita, let me start with you. Let's talk a little bit. We have a longstanding statute, but how did we get to where we are today with this new employee versus independent contractor rule that the Biden administration has just issued? Well, David, I'm going to start with something that's a little bit out of our wheelhouse and say, in the 90s, I worked for a very large defense contractor, McDonnell Douglas. And we had, as many other companies had in the early 90s, lots of layoffs. Out of that came a movement by companies to hire people in more temporary roles, not as full-time employees, that they could easily shift when the economy went badly. And so I think that one of the reasons there's not been an independent contractor rule, so there was no independent contractor rule prior to 2021. Think about that. No rule on independent contractors until 2021. I think part of that was that over the last 22 decades or so, independent contractors have become a much larger part of the economy. And so there was sub-regulatory. There was something in the Obama administration by David Weil. He's part of the fissured workplace on independent contractors that was rescinded by the Trump administration. Then the Trump administration, and David, I know you're going to talk a little bit about their approach, issued IC regulations in January of 2021, which were to go in effect in March of 2021, which was during the Biden administration. The Biden administration attempted to rescind those. That was unsuccessful. They lost in the district court and they went ahead and put the Trump administration regulations into effect. And we'll talk a little bit about where that is right now. Now they issued in October of 2022 a proposed rulemaking, and this is the final rule. They had 55,000 comments, according to Ms. Lohman, in her interview with you. That's right. And so we now have, from sub-regulatory guidance to the midnight regulation that the Trump administration put in, which got flummoxed up in litigation, and now we have this new proposed rule. So, Bert, what's in the 300 pages? You slogged through them all. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yes, I have. (laughs) Not much sleep. Thank you. Thank you in advance. (laughs) Well, you know, let's start with the overarching, the subsuming concept. According to the rule, the determination of whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor should focus on whether the worker is economically dependent on the employer for work or is in fact an independent business person in business for him or herself. According to the new rule, there are the six factors, many of which are familiar from the subreg and from the Trump rule. And here they are, and I'll try to just run through them. In the past, in the Trump rule, there were two core factors, the most important of which was having direct control over the work and whether the worker had an opportunity for profit and loss. That is to say, was an independent entrepreneur. That's now changed. There are now six equal factors, and they are assessed under what they call a totality of the circumstances. Here they are. These will be familiar to many of you. Opportunity for profit and loss, depending on your skills. Investments by the worker and the potential employer. Degree of permanence of the work relationship. That is to say, you're there for a day or a week, or you're there for a year. 
This next one is one of the more controversial, the nature and degree of control. Those words come from the past, but the explanation in this regulation is a source of real dispute because the DOL states that even reserved control, that is to say, a contractual right to oversee or supervise work, even if you never use it, could be an indicator of employment status. The next uh, also controversial is the extent to which the work performed is integral to an employer's business. So, for example, a law firm hires a contract lawyer for a specific project. Is that an employee because her work is integral to the law firm? Or is that an independent contractor coming in to do a specialized task using specialized skills? Number six is skill and initiative, which kind of folds into the, what, the example I just gave. And the last one, which is a carryover, but it's kind of open-ended, it's called additional factors. If they in some way indicate whether the worker is in business for him or herself or is economically dependent, and there's not much explanation about what that means. The most important thing to remember is that no one factor predominates, which means both workers and employers can't be certain as to how these elements are going to be assessed and therefore can't be certain how they should be classified. Bert, I want to pick up on that last point, that is that lack of certainty, because I want to just pause and make sure that people have the takeaway. The prior administration, and it was really, it was Secretary Scalia, made a conscious decision that it was beneficial that people could have a level of certainty, predictability, to stabilize the application of these rules. And that's why they adopted the core factors. So people knew, focus on these factors. If you meet these factors with a level of confidence, you can know whether the individual worker is an employee or contractor. This new paradigm with the six specified factors, plus what I call factor seven, which is the catch-all and anything else, that is a nightmare scenario in terms of how we go about it. And I think that's the reason not only will this result in much broader application, that is, more workers are going to be employees than under the prior rule, but it's also going to be very challenging for employers with a sense of accuracy to be able to really accurately or with confidence predict, which is what compliance should be based on, clear rules, and then you're held accountable. You know, and I think we'll talk about these in a little more in depth, but I think some of them, too, talking about degree of permanence at the work relationship, for example, and they basically say, they go back to a 1947 Supreme Court case and say, someone who comes and goes could still be an employee if what they're doing is integral to the employer's business. Bringing your personal equipment or vehicle to the work doesn't mean that you're a contractor. And Bert, your favorite, the reserve control. The thing that jumps out at me is, yes, it's very broad. But from my point of view, this is targeted at the gig economy. I mean, if you look at the long discussions of why being able to set your own schedule, what being able to work for others, using your own vehicle, not being able to set your own fees, they do not make you an independent contractor, which in the past they would have. And you know it's aimed at the, the Ubers, the list, the DoorDashes, even though they dispute it. And I also think you shouldn't overlook that very long section at the end where they talk about reserve rights in a contract can be an indicia of employment. And that attacks the franchise model. It kind of backdoor regulation of joint employer for staffing agencies. 
this regulation is going to have a huge impact on how employers staff, how they predict their labor costs. This is a giant regulation. I think that's really true. And, you know, one of the things, too, we had an interesting discussion, which I'd like to throw out to the two of you. So, David, you said, let's say we are trying to hire a full-time lawyer for the firm, but we can't find one. So we got a project or something and we want to bring in a contract lawyer. So you and Bert had talked yesterday about whether that person would, in fact, be under this rule, an independent contractor or an employee. How would you characterize that? Starting with you, David. Historically, many, I'll call it professional services. And I, you know, Nita, you at the beginning highlighted kind of what started in the 90s. I would just add on to that. I think particularly during COVID, there was an acceleration that organizations got slimmer in terms of their day-to-day core headcount and really became dependent on the ability to pick up often former employees who have a good positive relationship, know the business, the clients, the customers, et cetera, and continue working with them. In this instance, where the example of the lawyer, I think the key determination of my view is that they are doing work that's integral to the business that's being performed. That is, they're coming in, even though they're doing very specialized work, it may be on a project basis, but I think the fact that they're actually doing, quote unquote, the production work, the work of the business, and this could be for lawyers, accountants, I mean, it could be any number of consultants, any number of efforts where we would see that that individual who historically many would have viewed with confidence could be a contractor, an independent contractor paid on a 1099 basis, probably under this rule, more likely than not, in my view, is more likely to be an employee. I think the point is you look at each of these factors, and in your case, you're talking about a lawyer to a law firm. It seems to me, and there is an example of this, where you bring in an accountant or a lawyer to somebody that that is not their business, you might be able to make the argument that, in fact, in that situation, they are an independent contractor. Bert? Well, I would argue, devil's advocate, I'm going to say this person is an independent contractor for a number of reasons. First, the duration is so short, it's specialized. The person can set their rate. They say, I'll only work for you for X number of hours, for X number of dollars per hour. I'm bringing a specialized skill, which is one of the criteria here. Yes, it may be integral, but it's short term. I'm in control of my fees. I can probably set my schedule other than having to use the office materials. I think this is a closer case than you're presenting. If, however, it is a short term single project and that's in the contract. But frankly, the fact that we are debating this on such a fundamental level after, you know, between the two of us, nearly 100 years of labor law, tells you that this is going to be confusing for employers. And frankly, it shouldn't be this darn hard to hire somebody. Right. Well, let's take just another example, because I think these points do illustrate, and whereas under the old rule with those core factors, with a higher level of confidence, much more streamlined, we could, I think, cut through this and make a determination. What about someone who installs tile, a tiler? They may come to your house to do a bathroom renovation project, or they may be working for a construction company who um, is installing bathrooms in an apartment renovation. What are your takes on that? Bert, I'll start with you. 
Well, clearly, it seems to me that the guy that comes to your house, the plumber, the tiler, the appliance repair person, if they're their own company, drive a truck with their name on it and all that other stuff, they're independent contractors. On the other hand, since that work is integral to general contractor, you get this kind of gray area where the general contractor doesn't know that the person he's been using for the last decade as an independent contractor has suddenly become integral to his business, no particularly specialized skill. He's a carpenter, tiler. Under these rules, he may very well be an employee. Well, and it was interesting. The other thing you can look at is what is a specialized skill? Because I think, Bert, you were talking about there's a couple of examples where you bring in a welder, you know, that person is probably going to be an employee in that situation. Whereas if you've got this really fancy tile and only one person in the county can actually do that particular kind of tile, we put in some handmade tiles in our kitchen, for example, years ago. And I think, you know, maybe in that situation, but I think generally this is one of those situations that business people hate. It depends. Right. When you run compliance, and particularly when you have to figure out, does this worker belong on my payroll, or is this a 1099 vendor? That's the fundamental question. And honestly, Mm -hmm. my complaint, my observation on these rules, even before they get implemented, is it's just too darn complicated, and it doesn't need to be such. I appreciate that clearly, and clearly what the expectation from the Labor Department is, it is complicated, so employers out there, businesses, default and just make them all employees. Mm-hmm. What do you care? Just make them all employees. Clearly, that's, that's the point. Clearly, That's, that's what the they're doing here. So let's just call <laughs> that out, because if you want certainty, the Labor Department will say, of course you can have certainty. Put them on. You don't have to have an employee for years. They could be a 90-day employee. You can put them on. Put them on on a project basis, but just make them W-2. And I think this goes to our point. It is complicated. And unfortunately, I mean, we know there's litigation coming. There's actually litigation pending, to be perfectly honest, because they appealed the decision to the Fifth Circuit and it's been put on hold. And there's every expectation that this rule is also going to be, whether it's part of that appeal or they simply file a new one, you're going to get litigation. But I think both of you think that this is not as clear that this one's going to be enjoined as the overtime rules were. I think that's probably correct because this is in the wheelhouse of wage and hour. However, the expansiveness of it, the unremitting nature of it, it's so clear that the thumb is on the scale for employment, especially that reserve control and the contractual control element. That may be what this court says is beyond the delegated authority that Congress intended. Right. That's the question. And whereas the litigation before challenging the midnight regulation by the Trump really turned on, did they comply with the Administrative Procedure Act? Did they give enough notice? Did they go through rulemaking correctly and attempting to rescind it and go forward? So, Bert, your point is correct. I don't think that this rule is vulnerable in terms of APA. That is, that they went through notice and comment. They they cleared all those hurdles. But in substance, whether it's subject to challenge as being proper or improper under the FLSA, that's a close call. I think even in the Fifth Circuit, this rule is likely to be sustained. But personally, for the sake of our clients, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> and I, uh, well, I'd add to that that I know that there are quite a few efforts afoot where people certainly around town here in Washington are looking closely at the rule. Litigation is a near certainty to challenge it. I don't think it's going to happen in the next week or so, but there will be a litigation challenge. So all of which 
I kind of want to pivot and focus on you're an employer. You're listening to this. You know, this is what employers need to know. All right, great. I've got lawyers that have 100 years of experience. They don't know what the rule means. They're telling me there may be more litigation. What am I supposed to do? Because apparently I've got a new regulation that's going to kick in in 60 days. So I want to spend a moment or two for the poor suffering employers out there and see what we can do to help them out. I would suggest as an opener, you need to look at your business model. And if you are using workers on a broad basis that you're currently deeming to be contractors, you need to bear down and look at that. You need to reimagine if we did have to payroll those folks, put them on as employees, what would the consequences be? For example, are they working more than 40 hours in a work week? You have to deal with overtime unless you can argue they're exempt. You have to think through in terms of benefits and all the normal payrolling costs and consequences of putting someone on the roster. So it seems to me that that's the beginning point that has big budget consequences. It has big operational. Who's going to manage them? Maybe you need to manage them differently. I think there's a lot of consequences to that, but that's the starting point is to look at that. I would also add that if you have contract labor, that you look at those contracts because those reserved rights, you know, the right to control the quality, the right to oversee and supervise, the right to approve the final product under these rules may get you into an employment situation for someone whom you hired as an independent contractor. So start with David's point, continue on, press through to all of these examinations. Absolutely, because you don't want to be caught on March 11th, because this, as Bert and David have pointed out to me, they're private rights of action. And there are plenty of people who would be happy to sue you over your misuse of the independent contractor rule. That's right. And I just would add on to that, that the environment for employers is very tricky because you have the labor department who can enforce, you have private litigants. Also, I just want to give a shout out to the state laws that control and whichever law is the most protective of the worker. For example, under the federal law, if you're in California under the ABC test, for example, there may be obligations there. So, all right. There obviously is a lot there and will continue to be a lot there. I think we will have some future discussions on this same regulation as the developments unfold. But let's wrap it up there. And I'm going to ask for key takeaways, as I always do. Bert, let's start with you, please. I'm kind of impressed that for the first time since the Franklin Roosevelt administration, we appear to have coordinated efforts within the administration to remake workplace law. And look, in the last few weeks, joint employer regulation, overtime regulation, and now independent contractor, all within the space of a month, this is an effort to remake the laws of the workplace. And I think when you look at them, they all point in the same direction, to get more people as employees. So they'll be covered by all of the employment laws. Well, I agree with that. And I think that employers, I mean, that's the direction the tide is running. It's been a long time since I've heard the FDR administration cited as a precedent. But Bert, <laughs> I like that. I do think that as a sound business practice, making sure you evaluate your current operations and looking carefully at how you use non W-2 employee labor in your operation, evaluating that, including under potential joint employer liability and what the implications of these rules will be. These rules are intended to result in many more individuals being deemed to be employees and covered by employees. D-1 
DOL is not bashful about that. So even if historically you've had longstanding arrangements that your lawyers have said, yeah, they're contractors, you should revisit those in light of these new rules. So with that, Bert, Nita, thank you both. Another really interesting discussion. And folks, if you're not already a subscriber, please, please, please just push that subscribe button. You can go on Apple, Spotify, wherever you consume your podcasts. We're there. And we'd really be pleased to have you follow us. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the DC Insider Employer Update. The podcast that provides analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand. You can subscribe to the DC Insider Employer Update podcast wherever you get your podcasts, which includes Apple, Spotify, and Google. Additional information about our podcast is located on the Fortney Scott website at fortneyscott.com. Thanks again for listening to the DC Insider Employer Update.